Good morning. Welcome to the Church in Malvern. We are so glad you're here today. This morning, we're continuing a series that we have been teaching. It's something that has been taught to us by a mentor, a mentor who died last year, but it's something that has been so moving, so motivational to Cole and I, we had to pass it on to you. Have you ever worked with somebody that claimed authority? I mean, but they didn't really have it. You know, somebody who was maybe like this guy, Dwight Schrute. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, And what about you students? Maybe you have been in a classroom where someone became the self-appointed leader, right? Nobody likes that. We don't like to follow that person. We don't like to uh, be around that person, really. And we don't like to do what they want us to do if they are self-appointed. And what's more, we don't actually listen to them. I mean, we might even make fun of them, kind of a Jim Halpert type thing, right? Or maybe, maybe it's a leader who has some authority, but they really don't use it well. I mean, they are bad leaders. We have a hard time submitting to any kind of leadership like that. Self-assumed leaders, bad leaders, someone who didn't deserve it or have have not earned it, but Those examples of leadership, what about those that are actually earned? What about those who do deserve the leadership? Because with that leadership, we find it easier to submit, at least if you're anything like me. That kind of authority creates a beautiful picture. And it's that kind of picture that we have painted by our eyewitnesses. Now, in Scripture, eyewitnesses like Peter and Mark, they give us this beautiful example of Jesus claiming authority. And then, Jesus backing up that authority big time. Those eyewitnesses, they saw it in living color for themselves. They wrote it down, and it was all written down for us. So as we've said numerous times, many scholars believe that Mark's biography is mostly Peter's eyewitness account, and it's recorded by Mark. But Mark was actually there, too, for much of it as well. So Peter and Mark are kind of working together. They're collaborating, and it's kind of uh, co-authoring this eyewitness testimony in writing, obviously, though, inspired by God's Spirit. Now, this morning, we have three snapshots that we want to look at in Mark to the point where we are right now as we hit these highlights in Mark. Um, And these happen fairly close together. Uh, Mark starts off, as we started in week one, by telling us it all began. And then after that, we read how this three-person God um, showed up at the same time at the baptism of Jesus, and he is renewing what he originally created. And then right after the baptism, we have Jesus who goes into the wilderness for this well-known temptation that he passed with flying colors. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus travels about after that, um, and he's healing people, many, many, many people. And then we come to this first snap that we're going to be looking at today. It's found in Mark chapter 2, and Jesus is teaching from inside somebody's home, and a huge crowd has gathered uh, to the point where really they're overflowing outside of the home. They're looking in the windows, through the door, and maybe out, out into the street possibly. And as he's teaching, Jesus looks at this paralyzed man who has just been lowered through the roof to the feet of Jesus. Now, I'm going to spare you the suspense. Jesus actually heals the man. But Before he heals him, this happens. It's in Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 4. He says, Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Now, verse 5. Seeing their face, uh, I'm sorry, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now, 
we read that and we're like, okay, how nice, Jesus, you forgave this man. That's awesome. That's wonderful. But we can miss the whole point so easily. You know, Jesus knew that what he was going to say was going to stir up the people. And especially it was going to stir up those super religious professional law keepers. And when Jesus said, I forgive you, the religious people, I mean, they go berserk because only God can forgive sin. Only God has that power. Only God has that authority. So by declaring this man's sins forgiven, Jesus is actually declaring that he is the Lord God. The religious leaders immediately think to themselves, that's blasphemy. I mean, and Jesus hears their thoughts. Yes, he actually hears their thoughts. And then he answers their thoughts with this question. He says, which is easier to say he's forgiven or to say, take up your mat and walk? Now, these religious leaders probably thought maybe the same thing we could think, because if someone asks us that question, it's like, well, it's easier to say something than have to do something and prove it. I mean, you'll have to prove what you say, but, it, you know, so if you say get up and walk and he doesn't walk, well, you're a phony, a, a fake, a liar, a fraud, which is why Jesus immediately looks at the man and he says, get up pick up your pallet and go home. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus just proved, yes, he is the king. He has the authority to forgive sins. And he also has authority over the human condition. Now that's the first snap we're going to look at. Here's the second snap. Again, it's from the eyewitnesses. Now this one happens at the end of chapter two. Uh, the first was at the beginning. This is at the end and we're in verse 23. And uh, that's that's where it goes. Um, so we're actually taught on this passage. Let's see. Um, Cole and I taught on this about 11 months ago. Jesus is making a claim here that is so out of this world that the leaders, they don't even have a word for it. They can't describe it. They, they, they're not sure how to handle this. So um, at the, uh, the, here's what Jesus is actually claiming. He is claiming that he is not just here to reform religion, not here to improve it or make it better, but actually he's here to end religion and to replace it with himself. Here's a quick summary of the snapshot. See, it's a Sabbath day, and God's law demanded that they would rest from work one day out of every seven. Now, Jesus was sinless, which means that Jesus obeys the law perfectly, something that no one else could come close to doing, and no one has done since. And after all, it is his law. He wrote it. But the professional law keepers you see, they would take God's law, they would take a law, there's about 613, they would take one, and then they would add all their own laws to it, volumes, book after book after book, volumes of laws, that would be the equivalent. They would say, if this is what God says as law, then here are all the ways that you have to live this out. So these are all the extra things that you must do to keep the law. You must not do this and this and this and this, and, and you must do this and this and this. And so here they had created all their own laws. They had many, 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 many volumes of laws for every one of God's laws. So you can imagine how many, it would fill libraries. So Jesus and the disciples, they're walking along 
on this day of rest, and they're hungry. I mean, the mid the the men they they did something so innocent in our minds. They took some handfuls of grain and they ate them. They were hungry, but the professional lawkeepers hanging around. They blew the whistle. I mean, it's almost like a, a football game. The, the whistle blows, the flags come in, and it's like they say, stop, penalty. And they kind of point to the disciples, you're harvesting on the Sabbath. You can't do that. That is a sin. To which the sinless Jesus responds. And here's what he says in Mark chapter Two, verse 27, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not the people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. And Jesus, right here, he's going to flex. I mean, he's going to prove that he has the authority to explain this and the authority to make this call. So Jesus says in verse 28, so the Son of Man, and that's that's Jesus referring to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. So far, we have in snap one, Jesus proved that he had authority over sin and he had authority over all things physical. And here he says, I also have authority over the Sabbath. I have authority, everything related to it. Now, let's jump ahead into the third snapshot. We're going to come back to snap one and two in just a moment, but here's the third. Uh, this happens right after the second snapshot. So we are now at the beginning of chapter three, and it also is on a Sabbath day. So in Mark three, we're going to be looking, uh, if you can go find the story in verses one through six, I'm going to give you a few of those verses in just a moment. Let me describe it. So Jesus goes into the synagogue and he notices a man with a deformed, a non-functioning, something was wrong with it, hand. And of course, since it was the Sabbath, the leaders, these professional law keepers, they are watching closely because they're thinking if Jesus heals on the Sabbath, ah, we can get him because they had added their own laws to the Sabbath and you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. That was one of them. So Jesus gives them a show. He asked the man to stand in front of everybody. He looks at his critics, Jesus does, and he says, In Mark 3, uh, verse uh, 4 here, he says, Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or destroy it? Now, that was the question Jesus asked. They didn't answer, which apparently kind of made Jesus a little upset. Not really because they didn't answer the question, but we're told that Jesus was upset because their hearts were so hard. These men had distorted something that God had created for humanity. He created the Sabbath for healing and repairing and replenishing, which is exactly what Jesus is getting ready to do as he heals this man. This is precisely what the Sabbath is about. But they had their man-made regulations. They were fixated on all these things they had made up. They had become so judgmental and so self-assessed, uh, self, I'm sorry, obsessed instead of caring about this man at all. So what got in the way of these professional religious people caring about this man? One word, religion. Now you might be wondering, why have I highlighted these three seemingly 
disconnected snapshots from the early ministry of Jesus. Because as we look at them, there doesn't seem to be any apparent connection other than they happened in this order. Well, here's why. Jesus makes it crystal clear the difference between religion and the gospel. So really lean in here for a moment. Jesus shows the difference between what man creates, which is religion, and the good news, which is God's. Jesus makes it very obvious that there are different ways to live. And he clarifies this, that there's something that we as humans have wrestled with for millennia. Here it is. Either I do or he did. In other words, it's religion versus the gospel. Religion is everything I do, I have to do to make God love me, to make God accept me, to make God approve of me. That's everything I do. That's religion. Or it's the gospel, which says, no, 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 no. It's everything he did. So we're going to take a quick look at that. So let's take a look at religion. See if this sounds familiar. Religion requires a, a list so that we can feel good when we accomplish everything on that list. In other words, I need all, here are all the to-dos. I do this, I do this, check, check, check. I will not do this, I will not do this, I'll avoid this, check, check, check. And then when I accomplish all that, I feel good, right? That's religion. Here's the next thing. Religion leaves us uh, searching for assurance. Assurance that we're right with God. Because here's the problem. As long as there's a to-do list, I'm always wondering, have I done everything? Is there even maybe possibly something not on my list that should be on my list that I don't know about? So we never have the assurance that we have done everything we need to do, and we've done it perfectly, and we've done it right. We have no assurance. We're always wondering what a horrible place to be, to always wonder, am I really okay with God? Is he okay with me? And then religion also leaves us needing to know in exact detail what we must do. After all, we have to know everything, and then we worry that we don't know it all. We don't know all the things we're supposed to do, all the boxes we're supposed to check. But we, we have to know in exact detail, or we'll miss out, right? That's religion. See, we don't look at what the law intends with religion. We're actually... Rather, we write in all these extra details, all these extra things just to make sure. I know here's what God said, but here's all the ways, here's all the other things. That's what the Jewish people had done, and we do that too still today. All these other details, well, we also have to obey this and this and this and this. Now, let's contrast that with the gospel. See, the gospel fulfills the law's intent, what it was intended for, what it was truly meant to do. And that leads to a life of love, a life you want to live. And you live that before God who has done so much for you. So here, here's the essence of what I'm saying with that. When we do things and we're part of the gospel, it's because God has done so much for us that we want to. It's not that we 
have to check a box. It's not that we have to get these things right. Anything we do because of the gospel, because of his love for us, is simply because I am in awe about how much he loves me. And that makes me want to pursue him, want to chase after him, want to love him, want to serve him and even others. Here's another thing. The gospel takes you out of yourself and it shows you how to serve God and others instead of being absorbed with yourself. Here's what I mean by that. We can do a lot of good things in religion, and we can serve people, and we can help people, and we can do do things for them. But if it's related to me needing to check that box so that God can look at me and say, oh, good, you're okay now. You've done all that. I'm really doing those things for me. How selfish. And see, the gospel flips the script. The gospel, when I do things for other people and I have been absorbed in, uh, uh, transformed by the gospel, the good news of Jesus, I'm not doing it to check a box. I'm doing it because I am in awe of what God has done for me. So of course, of course, I'll love other people. It's a big difference. Here's the third thing. The gospel leads to living in a way that makes you please and resemble the one who created and redeemed you. The gospel makes us more and more and more like Jesus. Religion makes us look like Jesus on the outside, but nothing like Jesus on the inside. The gospel does both. The good news is Jesus did away with religion, and he had the authority to do it. Remember back in Snapshot 2? That's where Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is affirming, yes, yes, you do need rest. I'm not saying you don't need rest, Jesus said. You do need rest. You need all this other stuff, but you, but you don't need the stuff you've added Jesus didn't say, listen to this, he didn't say, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. I know there's a a couple of uh, English translations that say, uh, translate that Lord over the Sabbath, but all the rest translate it Lord of the Sabbath. And I like that because it helps us understand a difference here. Jesus, he's not saying, oh, listen, that's mine. I can change those rules whenever I want. I can change the rules. So we're going to change the rules now. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus said he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of that deep peace and rest and refreshment that was intended by the very idea of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I am the source of the deep rest you need. So get this, it's no longer one day out of the week that you have to take a rest. You just get a little taste of it on that one day. No, no, Jesus said, I'm here to complete that rest. I am the source. Only I can give you the rest that you must have. In Genesis 1, after creation, we know God rested from his work, but it's not for the reason that we often think. He didn't rest because he was tired. God God can't get tired. He rested because it was a job well done. It was finished. There's no more to do. 
It was perfect. It was complete. And he could now say, ah, ah, yes. He was happy with it. He was so satisfied with it. It was finished. It was good. It was all good. So he stopped. He rested. Now contrast that with religion because the work of religion, it's never over. See, religion forces you to convince God and keep on convincing God. It forces you to convince yourself and continue to convince yourself that you really are okay. You really are good. And that work of trying to convince God and trying to convince ourselves, it's never over. It is never finished. Only if we rest in the gospel, the good news, unless we rest in what Jesus did for us. At the end of creation, the Lord said, it is finished, and he could rest. And on the cross, at the end of his great act of redemption, the Lord once again said, it is finished, and now we can rest. There's no more work required. We don't have to earn our way. You know why? Because the work is finished, so we can rest. Jesus lived the life that I should have lived, and he died the death I should have died. And you know what that means? It means that if you rely on the finished work of Jesus, then you know that God is satisfied with you, and you can be satisfied with life. It is finished, so you can rest. See, Jesus had real authority. He had authority over sin. He proved it. He had authority over everything physical. He proved it. He had authority over even this ultimate rest. No human teacher has ever made claims like Jesus made. Jesus made these I am statements. I I am the one that has authority over sin. I'm the one that has authority over everything physical. I, I have authority over ultimate rest. That is who I am. Let's jump back to snapshot number one for a moment, the paralyzed man. You remember what Jesus said? He said, your sins are forgiven. Now, here's what that means. Ultimately, all sins are against God. All sins are against, here Jesus is saying, me. They're against me. Jesus, that means they're against me, Jesus, God, the great I am. Think with me for a moment. Here's why. You can only forgive sins committed against you. So if you punch me in the nose, Cole can't walk up here and say, ah, you're forgiven because you didn't punch him. You punched me. So by forgiving this man's sins, Jesus is saying, I'm forgiving these sins which you committed against me. Therefore, Jesus is claiming to be God. You see, you can't take Jesus as a good teacher. It just doesn't work. It's not an option because good teachers don't claim that they have created and that they sustain the world. There's only two options with Jesus. Either he is this wicked, crazy person, and therefore we should have nothing to do with him, or he really is who he says he is. And our life should then orbit around him and him alone, and we should throw everything at his feet. 
with, with this heart that says, Jesus, where you lead, I will follow. So command me, King Jesus. There's no in-between. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of all creation. And at creation, the Lord said, it is finished so he could rest. And at the cross, the Lord said, it is finished so we can rest forever. We just have have this one simple next step as we end week three of this series. And the next step is this. Would you just simply go back and listen to this again? Listen again. Try to understand more as we are building our case that the eyewitnesses were declaring Jesus is the king.